is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm pleased to be joined today by Dr. John Lott. John is an economist and one of the most knowledgeable commentators and experts when it comes to gun policy and crime. He was a senior advisor at the Department of Justice and is the president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. So we're going to discuss guns and crime in the United States. What are the facts about firearms and gun violence? What are the most common misconceptions people have about guns? We're going to talk about why crime is going up in certain major cities, such as here in LA, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Chicago. We're going to talk a little bit about red flag laws and what we know about the effects of gun control. So, John, thanks so much for being with me. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So, you know, I've met say quite a few people in my life who don't understand, you know, the gun thing as they would refer to it. And, uh, you know, these people, I, to me, they fall into three buckets. One are sort of your left-wing authoritarian types, and they, they just won't be reasoned with. You know, this is uh, people like Justin Trudeau, for example, who just banned the uh, the sale and transfer of handguns in Canada. Another type are sort of your people who grew up in shelter environments, maybe in big city types, had no exposure to firearms growing up, have never seen them. They think they're scary. They, they don't understand why you'd want to have more people having guns in society. And number three, I would say, are, are probably people from immigrant communities who who grew up in high trust societies where crime and petty crime and muggings weren't an issue. People from Europe, people from certain Asian cultures, and they, they just don't understand it. They weren't they didn't grow up around guns. To them, the only people who had guns were were criminals. So explain to them your position on guns. What I focus on are data and numbers dealing with whether gun ownership makes people safer or not. Uh, you mentioned Europe, for example. Uh, I don't think most people realize that the vast majority of Europe has much higher violent crime rates than the United States does. Uh, m- many of them have lower murder rates, but overall violent crime rates in terms of robberies, assaults, rapes are significantly higher than in the United States. The UK, for example, uh, has uh, violent crime rates is probably about twice what it is in the United States. Um, what makes us somewhat different is we have a much worse drug gang problem uh, than most countries have. Um, our murders in the United States are very heavily concentrated in very tiny areas within the United States. Uh, you have about 2% of the counties or 60 of the 3,140 counties account for over half the murders. And if you ever look at what's called a, a murder map, which will go and show how murders are distributed within those counties, you'll see that about two-thirds of their murders occur within 10-block areas. And that's very heavily gang-related, drug gang. And so, you know, just generally, I would say anybody who's read my academic work knows that I think police are the single most important factor for reducing crime. But that police themselves understand that they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. And uh, the question is, what's the safest course of action for people to take when they're confronted by a criminal? 
You look at surveys of police officers, police officers have been extremely strong supporters of private ownership of guns. Uh, they, you know, you look at surveys, you'll get about 77% of police officers think that private ownership of guns are either extremely or very important uh, in terms of reducing violent crime. And they see in their own careers and lives how important uh, gun ownership is. So, you know, if my research convinces me of anything, uh, it's the most vulnerable people in our society who benefit the most from being able to own guns. Uh, there are two groups in particular, those who are most likely victims of violent crime, and that overwhelmingly tends to be poor blacks who live in high crime urban areas, and people who are relatively weaker physically, women and the elderly. You know, you're almost always talking about a young male doing the attack, and when a young man is attacking a, a woman or an elderly person, there's a lot larger strength differential that exists there than when a man's attacking another man. And the presence of a gun for a woman or an elderly person represents a much bigger relative change in their ability to go and protect themselves and uh, resist the attack that's there. And so, you know, my concern is that a lot of the gun control laws that we have make it difficult for those most vulnerable people to be able to go and have guns. I can give you lots of comparisons, but I'll just give you a simple comparison. Compare Illinois with Indiana. In Indiana, uh, last year, about 22% of the adult population had a concealed handgun permit. In Illinois, it's about 4%. Why you have the difference? Mm -hmm. Indiana is obviously a very heavily a uh, Republican state, and in Illinois is a very heavily Democratic state. In Illinois, it costs about $450 to go through the process to go and get a concealed handgun permit. In Indiana, it was $12.95. You make it a lot more costly. You're going to see a lot fewer people going and getting permits. But you also change the mix of people who go and get permits. Uh, in Illinois, it's almost all wealthy whites who live in the suburbs, mm -hmm. uh, which is fine. I'm glad they're able to go and protect themselves. But uh, in Indiana, where it's only $12.95 for the total cost, you see a lot more heavily minority poor zip codes having concealed carry permits. And so if you're going to receive an impact on crime, uh, from issuing concealed carry permits, you're going to have to make sure that it's the people who are likely victims of violent crime who have the permits. Mm -hmm. If you give it to people who are rarely going to be experiencing violent crime, you're not going to see much of an impact on crime from allowing people to be able to go and carry concealed handgun permits. And we could go through, there are lots of other discriminatory natures of uh, the gun control laws, but I think overwhelmingly uh, it's the people who need them the most that the gun control laws keep from being able to go and protect themselves. And just one other general point uh, to your thing, and that is people get the vast majority of their information about guns from the media. If you constantly hear about bad things that happen, and rarely, if ever, hear about the benefits from people owning guns. You know, it's not too surprising mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that people are afraid of others owning guns. So last year, uh, for the first nine months of the year, we did a pretty in-depth coverage of uh, news media, coverage of, of gun ownership, and of defensive gun uses. If you look at the top five newspapers in the United States, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, USA Today and the Wall Street Journal, between those five publications, they had a, a combined total of 10 stories about defensive gun uses. And most of those, something went wrong. Either the wrong person was shot or the gun was taken away from the person and used against them. Uh, 
by contrast, they had over 1,700 news stories about crimes being committed where somebody was killed or wounded by a criminal with a gun. They had another 1,000 news stories of simply guns being used in crime. Uh, you know, and if you add in CNN and MSNBC, there were like zero defensive gun use right. stories last year. And so somebody could think, look, I'm really well informed. I read all the major newspapers. I listen to CNN and MSNBC regularly. And I almost never hear about the defensive gun uses, if ever. And a couple of times I do hear about it, something goes wrong. But I'm constantly hearing about gun crime. So can you blame them if they think that simply getting rid of guns will reduce crime? And, and I'll just mention one other thing, and that is we recently uh, hired McLaughlin Associates to do a survey for us to ask people, what percent of violent crime do you think involves guns? Uh, Democrats, on average, thought it was about 58 percent. Republicans, on average, thought it was about 38 percent. The right number is less than 8 percent. So Democrats are 50 percentage points too high, and Republicans, on average, are 30 percentage points too high. And the thing is, those who are most incorrect, those who most overestimate uh, the percentage of violent crime involving guns, are the ones who are the strongest supporters of gun control. You have some people out there who think that over 90% of violent crime involves guns. And this isn't too surprising. Biden's uh, speeches on violent crime, the first three speeches he gave, he had something like about 175 uh, mentions of guns or gun violence. He mentioned police a grand total of four times, and two of those with, were with respect to enforcing gun control laws. And you look at the media, the media seems to find violent crime involving guns is a lot more newsworthy than violent crime not involving guns. And one last quick fact, and that is, it's interesting when you break it down by income and education for people answering these questions. Uh, the people who are most inaccurate about uh, the percentage of violent crime involving guns are people with graduate school educations. Uh, and those making over $200,000 a year, they think it's, you know, in the high 60% range, uh, violent crime involves guns. Um, and uh, the most accurate people are the ones who make less than $35,000 a year. And uh, those who haven't graduated high school or those who just have a high school degree. But what I think is going on there is that uh, the people who are most likely to experience violent crime, you know, poor people who, you know, don't have a lot of education, uh, they know that a lot of violent crime doesn't involve guns from firsthand experience. Whereas the people who went to graduate school and have high incomes uh, rarely experience violent crime. They get their impressions of violent crime probably from the media. And uh, it's not too surprising that they are way off by about 60 percentage points or so from what the actual numbers are there. Right. And, and that's consistent with my experience as well. I mean, people who grew up in, in very sheltered environments and in uh, and particularly those who come from very educated parents, you know, college professor types, they have no exposure to guns. They don't see the purpose of owning a, owning a weapon, owning a firearm for self-defense. You know, so it's just it's just seen primarily as a tool for crime. What does the research say about places that have either concealed or open carry as opposed to those that don't, the states that, that allow for that versus those who don't? Because a lot of times 
those same kinds of people will say, well, you know, if you just let people be able to carry weapons, you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, it's going to be like the Wild West, and it's going to, you know, more, you have more guns on the street, so naturally it's going to be much more crime. What does the research say about comparing the states that allow for carry versus those that traditionally have not? I don't need to guess about this. I mean, obviously, as you say, the Bruin decision by the Supreme Court, you live in Los Angeles, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, gnashing of teeth about what this is going to mean for people in California or Maryland or New York or New Jersey or other states that are out there. The thing is, they don't really need to guess. Uh, there are 43 states uh, that have had uh, so-called right-to-carry laws. The difference between California and New York and these other 43 states is what we call uh, whether you have to provide a good reason. So mm -hmm. in California, you have to go, you have to have training, you have to pay your permit fee, you have to have background check, and, but you also have to go to some public official and explain to them why you should be able to go and have a gun for protection. I actually got a hold of a list a few years ago of uh, all the concealed carry permit holders in Los Angeles County. Uh, it's gone up since then, but at that time there were 341 uh, concealed carry permit holders in the county out of an adult population about eight and a half million. Are you familiar with how many of those people who got the applications, what percent were accepted and what percent were denied in LA? I don't know. I just know what the okay. final acceptance. 7% uh, were women, 5% were black, and 6% uh, were Hispanic. But, you know, I can compare it to the rest of the country. In the rest of the country, about 29% of permit holders are women, about 12% are black. Mm -hmm. uh, you have over, I guess, about 11% of the adult population in Los Angeles County is black. Only 5% are, are permit holders. In the rest of the country, uh, the percent of blacks match pretty much their close share of their population. So is it just that in Los Angeles County, women don't feel the need to go and apply for a concealed carry permit because they don't face the crime that they do in the rest of the country, that they're not stalked or threatened, or blacks? are different in Los Angeles County in terms of not feeling threatened about violent crime as they are in the rest of the country. I kind of been doubtful about that. Right. Uh, and with regard to Hispanics, 54% of Los Angeles population is Hispanic, and yet only 6% of the permit holders are Hispanic. They basically, the people who get permits are generally wealthy, very politically connected right. white males and some Asian males. And, uh, you know, again, that's fine, but you basically see the people who were giving large donations to the sheriff's reelection campaign mm -hmm. were the ones that were getting it. And, you know, you could say I live in a very dangerous neighborhood, but if you live in New York or California or these other states, that's not considered a good reason. They would want to have a specific threat right. that you receive and uh, or, you know, were politically connected. Mm -hmm. And so um, what you find is that the states where you see the most permits issued, and in particular, uh, permits issued to people who are most likely victims of violent crime, uh, you see the biggest reductions in violent crime in those cases. Hmm. But one thing just in general, and that is, uh, you know, you see all sorts of predictions about, you know, the horrible things that are going to happen if you allow people to be able to carry, that uh, they're going to lose their temper or go and commit crimes themselves. Hmm. This simply doesn't happen. Permit holders are extremely law-abiding. Uh, they lose their permits for any type of firearms-related violation at about one-twelfth the rate that police officers are convicted of firearms-related violations. 
and police officers are convicted of firearms violations at about one-twentieth the rate of the general population. So permit holders are convicted at well less than one-two-hundredth of the rate that the general population is convicted of firearms offenses. Uh, And most of those violations are things like somebody forgetting to have their permit with them or uh, accidentally carrying a gun into a place where guns are banned. So, you know, there's a lot of fear about these things. And, you know, the way uh, New York, for example, has tried to deal with this is by trying to create virtually the entire state as a gun-free zone where you you can get a permit technically now. Uh, Though it's going to be very costly, but you're going to have to, there's virtually no place that you're going to be able to go and carry it. And the idea is just to make it unattractive for people to be able to defend themselves. What my research convinces me of is that criminals may be stupid in some sense, but they're not that stupid. Uh, They like to go to targets where they know victims can't defend themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, you look at things like these mass murders, things like the Buffalo mass murder from earlier this year at the grocery store in Buffalo, New York. The media covered his manifesto extensively, but it was very selective coverage. Uh, For example, he spent a lot of time uh, explaining why he picked the target that he did. And his number one reason uh, that he picked the target that he did is he wanted to go to a place where he didn't think uh, the victims would have permanent concealed handguns because he worried that that would make it a lot more difficult for him to go and accomplish the murders that he wanted to do. These guys may be crazy, but they're not stupid. Their goal is to get media coverage. They know the more people they kill, the more media attention that they're going to get. And so they go to the place where they know victims can't defend themselves. If you want to stop these types of mass public shootings, I would advise you to get rid of these gun-free zones. If you're going to have one police officer guarding a place, Please don't put them in uniform. Uh, If you have one officer in uniform in a place and an attack occurs, uh, who do you think they're going to take out first? Because if the attackers know that that's the only person with a gun that's there, they know that once they kill that person, they're going to have essentially free reign uh, to go and kill other people. Yeah, and you know, just a fine point on the bit about the special need provision that you need to have in some of these uh, left-wing states in order to get a gun permit is, first of all, as you said, what ends up happening is the most politically connected, the the wealthiest people in society, the ones with most influence, are the first ones to get those permits. We've seen that here in, in Los Angeles. In addition to that, you know, it's it's pretty asinine when you think, well, what if you needed a uh, a special need? You had to fulfill these arbitrary requirements, whatever special need is, you know, to get your like other constitutional rights, like a, your right to counsel. So it's it's arbitrary. It, the special need requirements were never clearly defined in most of these jurisdictions. It's up to basically the, the individual decision of, of a sheriff's department or a, a government official in order to give you that. So that that's why one of the reasons it's so problematic. In terms of, you mentioned, you know, the, the, the percentage of individuals who have permits and how law-abiding they are, even more so than the average population. What percent of the gun crimes are committed by people who have who are illegally possessing firearms. If you could tell me how many people illegally possess firearms in the United States, I guess. But, I mean, the whole point is if somebody's possessing a gun illegally, you don't know for sure. What I can tell you is you look at something like murders, and about 90% of adult murders are committed by people who have violent criminal records. Mm-hmm. So vast right. majority of them are illegal for them to go and own a gun. Right. And in the other 10% probably were committing crimes we just didn't know about. 
So, um, you know, uh, and it's almost the same percentages for juvenile murders. So uh, that's probably, probably the best mm-hmm. estimate that mm-hmm. we have on at least murders uh, being committed by uh, people who it's not legal for them to go and own a gun. The United States has a relatively bad drug gang problem compared to many other countries, not compared to Mexico or some countries like that, for example. But, uh, and they obviously have a much higher murder rate than we have here in the United States. But, um, you know, it's very difficult uh, to stop drug gangs from getting a hold of weapons. Uh, it's, look, I mean, you can see how successful we've been in stopping drug gangs from getting a hold of illegal drugs to go and sell. Right. And, you know, if I could click my fingers and cause all illegal drugs to disappear from the United States and all guns, how long do you think it would be before illegal drugs would start coming back into the United States? If you're in El Paso, Texas, 20 minutes. And how long do you think it would be before they would bring in the weapons to be able to go and protect that valuable property? It's not like a drug dealer can go to the police and say, this other gang stole our drugs, can you help us get them back? They have to essentially set up their own little militaries in order to do it. If you want to see what happens, go look at Mexico. Mexico uh, has a huge amount of drug gang violence. They've had only one gun store in Mexico since 1972. Hmm. Uh, it's run by the military. Guns are extremely expensive. Only about one-tenth of one percent of the adult population in Mexico is legally licensed to own wow. a gun. And, uh, and the most powerful gun that you've been able to buy in Mexico uh, since 1972 is a 22 caliber short-round rifle which is not what the gangs are using there. The drug gangs and cartels there in Mexico get their weapons from around the world. In a recent five-year period, uh, the Mexican government um, military had confiscated over 15,000 grenades uh, (laughs) from drug cartels. Now, they're not getting grenades from the United States. You don't walk into uh, gun stores in the United States and buy live grenades that are there. And... uh, you know, but they go and bring in the weapons from around the world uh, that they, at the same time, they bring in illegal drugs from around the world that they then go and transit into the United States. The, the president recently you know, sounded the alarm bells on ghost guns. Do you think that ghost guns are going to be more prevalent as we move forward in society with, with technological change and, and people being able to you know, have more 3D printers or, or what have you, more innovations that allow these things to be printed. Is this a problem we should worry about? And does this make the arguments for gun control stronger or weaker, given that people can, you know, presumably may one day print their own guns? Well, they already can print their own guns. They can, you can have metal printers out there that will make a gun that's functionally and looks identical to any gun that you can go and buy in a gun store. But look, uh, we've had homemade guns since before we were even a country. You know, that's basically what they're talking about. And there are already laws that deal with that. If you make a, a gun at home, uh, it's a felony punishable by five years in prison for you to go and sell it to somebody else. You know, we're not talking, there are virtually no crimes committed with these types of guns. You know, you really have to look hard uh, to do this. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, sometimes they'll mix in numbers about guns which are confiscated but not used in crimes. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, there are lots of claims out there, like, for example, on serial numbers with regard to guns. 
you know, uh, Biden talks about how important, which is really what we're talking about when we're talking about these homemade guns, do they have a serial number on them? Biden's recently had uh, rules that he wants to have that would have serial numbers on all sorts of different parts of the gun, not just the firing mechanism. And, you know, the claim is, is from Biden and others that this is very important in solving crimes. And that's simply false. You know, uh, you can see this with regard to registration of guns, which a number of places have had. You know, the, the theory is, is that if a gun is left at a crime scene and it has this serial number, and let's say it's registered to the person who uh, committed the crime, then you can go and trace it back to that person and solve the crime. The problem is, is while that may work on television crime shows like Law and Order, that's not what happens in the real life. In real life, one, uh, crime guns are virtually never left at the crime scene. In the few times that they are left at the crime scene, it's been left there because the, the criminal has been either killed or seriously wounded, so you're going to catch them anyway. And the couple times that they are left at the crime scene where they are registered to uh, uh, somebody, uh, they're not registered to the criminal who committed the crime. And, you know, and even the other, couple other times, they're not registered at all. And so, you know, the notion that somehow serial numbers or serial numbers by themselves, alone without even registration, is going to be useful in solving crimes or ever has been is simply, hmm. simply not true. Um, it's what they, the main reason that I believe that Biden is pushing uh, these serial numbers on all sorts of different parts of the gun is combined with his zero tolerance policy on paperwork mistakes. Um, Biden has put literally thousands of gun dealers out of business in the last year because what he's done is he's has the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives go through and check maybe the last 15 years of paperwork from, uh, from gun dealers to see if they can find any paperwork mistakes, no matter how trivial, no matter how inconsequential. And if they find one, you're out of business. And, uh, and what they want to do is by having uh, these serial numbers on all sorts of different parts of the gun. So if you're a dealer and you transfer a barrel from one gun to another and the barrel is going to have to have a serial number on it now, uh, you know, there's a likelihood that all the paperwork isn't going to be perfectly done there and kept mm -hmm. up to date and everything that's there. And so they're going to be able to go and put even more gun dealers out of business and just the cost, administrative costs of dealing with all that stuff. But, okay. Um, well, last thing, talk to us about the red flag laws, what your position is on that. Look, we recently uh, had McLaughlin Associates do a survey on this. If you look at surveys, you'll regularly find two to one or three to one support for these red flag laws. The questions, the way they're usually phrased is, do you support judges being able to temporarily take away a person's guns who's a danger to themselves or others? Seems like a pretty reasonable uh, option that's there. If you believe, if a judge believes somebody to be a danger to themselves or others, you know, to take away their weapons. The problem is, in asking these questions, the uh, surveyors really oversimplify things a lot. Um, so what we did, we just focused on two parts of the uh, laws that that aren't really mentioned at all in there. So when you say a judge can temporarily take away a person's guns, do people think that there's actually a hearing? Because uh, in real life, uh, under red flag laws, the only thing that the judge sees is a complaint. Somebody files a complaint, a written complaint. The judge never even talks to the person. There's no cross-examination, no examination of evidence. Uh, 
all he sees is the written complaint, and he makes the decision to take away a person's guns solely on the written complaint. So we ask people, would your support for these laws depend on whether or not there's a hearing to determine whether or not the person's a danger to themselves or others? And we also mentioned whether there were mental health care professionals involved, because none of these laws actually involve mental health care professionals in evaluating whether the person's a danger to themselves or others. If you just bring up those two points, and again, there's other ones we could brought up, that flips it from about two to one support to about two, to almost two to one opposition. So, um, you know, I think with a lot of these laws, it's simply not really well explained. Uh, I'll give you one other quick example. Um, these background checks on private transfers of guns. You constantly hear there's 90 plus percent of the people support them. Uh, but the thing is, when they've actually put these on the ballot, they lose. So how can you have, so like in Maine, was last time they put these up was in 2016. Uh, and there's a reason why they're not putting them up on ballots anymore. Uh, in Maine, uh, the gun control people outspent uh, the people on the other side by 20 to 1. The news media coverage was overwhelmingly favorable to these, this initiative that was on the ballot. And yet it lost by four percentage points. How can you have something that gets 90% support, 95% support, outspend the other side 20, 20 to 1 <laughs> right. and, and have favorable news coverage and still lose? And the reason is, is because, you know, when you get into the details, like on the red flag laws, people realize it's not what they thought it was. So, for example, let's say you have a, a woman that you know. Uh, she calls you up on a Saturday evening saying that her ex is threatening her. Uh, and she's wondering if she can borrow your gun for a couple days until she can get to a gun store. You know her. Uh, you know that she knows how to use guns. Uh, and you have no personal problem with lending it to her. Uh, in fact, you think it's a good idea, but if you lend it to her without going and going to a dealer who will conduct a background check, you will be committing a felony. Right. So, you know, you go through a lot of examples like that, and people say, you know, <laughs> uh, I'm not going to vote for this. And so even though kind of the way the question's phrased, because just like with the red flag laws, there's a lot of oversimplification in uh, the questions. They'll go in and they'll say things like, um, do you, uh, you know, do you uh, support background checks to prevent violent criminals from getting guns? And guess what? Ninety-four, ninety-five percent of people think that's a good idea. All right, but uh, that's not exactly what the law is limited to doing. That's really interesting. I mean, you made some really fascinating points that we often don't hear, particularly in the media. The devil is in the details on a lot of these questions. So I know you got to run, John, but thanks so much for being with me. I really enjoyed it. I think the audience learned a lot as well. Uh, where can people find you, learn more about your research? Well, they can go to our website at crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org. It has information on all the things that we've talked about at crimeresearch.org. But thank you very much. Appreciate it, John. Thanks so much. If you enjoyed our show, Please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening and we will be back next week.
We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.